all of Spiked's content is free. We rely on the help of loyal listeners and readers to keep producing our groundbreaking articles, essays, podcasts, and more. If you're a regular listener to this podcast and you have a bit of money to spare, please do consider donating to Spiked, or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work. To start your regular donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, on to the Spiked podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the EU's vaccine meltdown, Labour's patriotic rebrand and the online abuse of footballers. Together we are negotiating and together we're bringing forward this vaccination process. But trust has been eroded. Damage has been done. Humility has been in short supply. Indignant might be a better word for the EU in recent days. It's vital we keep borders open. We resist vaccine nationalism. It took four years to put the protocol together. People were blindsided by the decision that was taken. The EU is having a terrible time with its vaccine rollout. The UK reached 10 million vaccinations this week and has vaccinated around 15% of the population. The EU, in contrast, has reached just 3%. And as supplies have started to dwindle, the EU has lashed out by imposing export controls on vaccines produced on the continent. It even came close to imposing a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland in order to prevent vaccine supplies from getting to the UK. The EU has united practically everyone in the British Isles against it, unionists and nationalists in Northern Ireland, leavers and remainers in Britain, and the British and Irish governments. All have condemned the move. Outside Europe, Canada and Japan have raised serious concerns about its behaviour. Meanwhile, EU leaders have been spreading misinformation about the UK's vaccine rollout and the efficacy of the AstraZeneca jab to cover up their mess. Ella, what have you made of this past week? Well, it's quite remarkable and it's also quite difficult to, I think we said this in the podcast last week, it's quite difficult to stop yourself from gloating because as a group of people who voted to leave the European Union and have been for the last, you know, coming up to five years now, arguing with people who are certain that the EU is this kind of magic and wonderful and moral you know, source of everything moral and good. Mm. The events over the last two weeks have kind of proven us right. But the point I wanted to particularly focus on, which I, just blows my mind actually, is that last point you made, Fraser, about the issue of Ursula von der Leyen and Emmanuel Macron and others basically at this point sounding like anti-vaxxers. And Spiked has published a kind of list of all the ways in which the EU is in denial about its failure to deal with the vaccine rollout program. And it's great because when you just look at the list of what's happened over the last few weeks in succession, it kind of gets madder and madder. But in particular, their approach to AstraZeneca has been bizarre. So if you just look at what they've said, I mean, von der Leyen said, responding to questions about why they were failing to get AstraZeneca off the ground. She says, I remind you that a vaccine is the injection of an active biological substance into a healthy body. And yes, we left it later, but it was the right decision. 
I mean, <laughs> I've heard that from some of the people everyone have been laughing about in Trafalgar Square campaigning against the vaccination. You know, <laughs> you know, if you are injecting yourself, it's a very serious thing. Everyone knows it's a very serious thing. But the idea that you would have that level of a precautionary principle with really very little basis for being that kind of cautious about it when, as we've said before, regulation in the UK has accepted it. And as it happens, the UK took a punt on AstraZeneca and it's come through because not only has it been successful, but we've also now got the tentative but incredibly exciting prospect that it might have proven to be combative against transmission. So it's good news, happy days for AstraZeneca. But again, that doesn't stop even wilder claims. So Emmanuel Macron, who has been, this is just remarkable, has been fact-checked on the BBC two hours ago, I saw. They've had to publish <laughs> a fact-checking article against what Macron has come out with because he started, you know, I'm quoting him now, the real problem on AstraZeneca is that it doesn't work the way we're expecting to. Today, everything points to thinking it is quasi-ineffective, quasi that's the key phrase, on people older than 65, and some say those 60 years or older. And now, in particular, the European Union is obsessed with regulation, as we see with the, its response to the vaccine rollout to its detriment in some cases, is obsessed with this idea of fake news, misinformation, with controlling the narrative. And you know, the French approach is basically just taken off in, a, in a, what feels like a vindictive direction to slam AstraZeneca and question its effectiveness based on no, you know, no scientific basis for that claim. As it feels like, I think, as you put it in spike to like a lover spurned to kind of distract from the fact that member states of the European Union, because of the ineffectiveness of the European Union's approach to this, haven't been able to keep up with the UK. Mm. And when it comes to a very serious thing like a global pandemic, and when you're in a situation when you really want everyone to take this vaccine, everyone to believe in the efficacy of the vaccine backed up by the science, as so many people say is important, having political leaders like von der Leyen or Macron come out and basically, at this point, spread lies is incredibly dangerous. I mean, you can. this is the kind of thing the EU wants to <laughs> pass laws to stop. So it's really quite remarkable that they're engaging in this level of, at this point, kind of childish but dangerous backbiting. Tom? It is dangerous, but it's also really absurd because Macron made his comments, I think, on the same day that the European Medicines Agency approved the vaccine he was saying was quasi-effective. And Ursula von der Leyen suggesting that we'd rushed into approving this after it had approved this vaccine. So again, it's just so transparent what it is that they're doing. I know you guys talked about this on this issue on the podcast last week, so forgive me if it's going over old issues a little bit, but the past week really has shattered basically every Ramona myth about the European Union, either the small stuff that we heard over the course of the Brexit process or some of the big stuff about why the EU as an institution is a good thing. The issue over Ireland, again, all of this pieties from the European Union, that they would do nothing to endanger the peace process and nothing to bring about a hard border on Northern Ireland by, the, by threatening to invoke Article 16, effectively ushering one in, you know, barely a month into the agreement. This idea that it was going to stick by Ireland, you know, throughout the withdrawal deal talks, that was the whole charade, was this is us sticking by our smaller member state. This is what the EU does didn't even consult Dublin, threw them under the bus, basically, over the course of this process. And then even on some of the biggest stuff, you know, some of the more nuanced Remainers would say, yes, the EU is bureaucratic. Yes, it's therefore somewhat more unaccountable, but it works. Mm -hmm. This is about delivery. 
and it's utterly failed on all of these different fronts. And the only thing that stops you being sort of gloating about it, as Ella was saying, or kind of being churlish about it, is because of how serious this is. The EU is faced with its biggest crisis since 10 years ago, you know, since the wake of the financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis. And yet, not only is it being incredibly ineffective, dysfunctional, all of those things that we knew, but it's also becoming increasingly absurd and butt-passing in the way that it deals with this issue. It's just, it seems almost unserious in the way that it's going about things. Of course, you wouldn't expect much more from Ursula von der Leyen, given her very checkered history, shall we say, which is something you wrote about on Spike This Week, yeah. Fraser. But it's staggering, really, when you think about it, especially given how high the stakes are. Yeah, I did want to talk a bit about Ursula von der Leyen because, you know, the choice of her as EU Commission President is really coming home to roost. I don't think anyone is pretending that she's a particularly good leader anymore. And, you know, we have to remember that that selection process was very, very dodgy. It was basically after the European parliamentary elections. She was chosen as basically the least offensive candidate. The only kind of democratic check on her ascending to power was in the European Parliament. And she squeaked through in a one horse race by a majority of nine votes. So that should really have heralded just how the lack of confidence that even people within the European institutions have had with her. And now it's come to the EU's biggest crisis, I would say, since its, its foundation, arguably, you know, since, since after the war. And they have a incredibly weak and pathetic leader who has made all kinds of mistakes. And it's, it's unfortunately, it's taken until now for people to come out of the woodwork and properly criticise her. I mean, it's been interesting to see that finally in Britain, you have had Remainers concede that this has gone badly wrong. I mean, no one can put their head in the sand over this and say this is that she's done a great job. Although I was fascinated by Merkel saying that nothing particularly has gone wrong or Martin Selmayr, who's a used to be a very powerful European civil servant, saying, well, at least the EU is doing better than Africa. You can also tell that it is Brexit that is putting the pressure on the EU, because Macron basically said of America that they'd done very well. Now, you know, America's doing slightly behind Britain. It is definitely doing very well. Whereas, you know, in the same breath, he'll say of Britain that it's being reckless, cutting corners, using ineffective vaccines. So, you can see very clearly that the animosity and the pressure on them to actually step up the vaccine program is coming from Brexit and, you know, not much else. Ella? One other thing that I wanted to mention was just the issue of Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Protocol and the triggering of Article 16, which the EU has attempted to pass off as, you know, sort of like, I think, I think this, the spiked article that we ran put it something like as if an intern had made a mistake, you know, they just kind of mm. said it, it wasn't supposed to happen. Oh dear, row back on it. But you have to remember for the last four and a half years, the question of Northern Ireland and any changes to the relationship between Northern Ireland and Britain or Northern Ireland and the EU, Northern Ireland and the South of Ireland has been like the most tense thing, you know, even moving an inch on anything, it's been tantamount to bringing up the troubles and violence and, uh, you know, that anyone with an opinion on this was risking creating explosions. And it just goes to show you that in the context of them kind of flailing around the vaccine, that something like this could happen is a good example of how not just that much of what the European Union, how much of the way in which the European Union has dealt with its relationship with the UK post-Brexit has been 
I wouldn't say lies, but it's been, you know, incredibly manipulative and kind of maneuvering to maintain a sense of its power. But the fact that they can use and abuse the question of Ireland and the border and all of this in such a way that it kind of with the triggering of article 16 was like it it didn't even matter as if the consequences weren't relevant you know it's another argument show that the the way in which the European Union operates is not a kind of benign collective based on a practical necessity for member states in Europe to interact together because if that was the reality then the vaccine rollout would have been much more smooth and much more practical and much more based in kind of hard facts of how this has to happen it has been yet another political exercise because i think i mentioned this last week is that the one thing in all of this that the european cares most about is not getting jabs in the arms of you know citizens in italy or wherever it is it's about maintaining face. And the biggest problem for them is not necessarily that they're failing to get vaccines on the ground, is that this is revealing not just the stagnation, but the stultifying nature of technocracy within the European Union, which is all in the world of politics and posture. So no, we shouldn't gloat. And there's been, I think, Brendan O'Neill and others have suggested that when it comes to the roll-up the vaccine, the UK in particular should take an internationalist approach and should help out Ireland. And there should be a pressure on taking a kind of a global view of this. But it has to be said that it's not this necessarily vindicates the Brexit decision, but it, the more the European Union plays its hand in this whole situation, the more it reveals why the pressures around sovereignty and the pressures around the anti-democratic nature of the European Union come to the fore. So it's not like saying that there should be, that we should pull a silver lining out of this because at the end of the day, vaccines aren't being given to people who need it in Europe. And that's a bad thing, but it does prove some political points that we have been making of the last few years. And the benefit of that is that we hope that there could be some change in movement in terms of other member states approach to the European Union. One of the best ways to beat the lockdown boredom is to learn something new. I love to learn and to learn with purpose. It's incredibly empowering to know that when I learn something new, I can do better, feel better and be better. So this year, I'm continuing to learn with purpose using The Great Courses Plus. And I want you to join me because there's so much fascinating knowledge that we can tap into. One course I've really been enjoying lately is The Fall and Rise of China. It covers everything from the days of China's empire to the communist era and the modern capitalist China that looms so large on the world stage today. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video courses on virtually anything that interests you. Learn how to master Tai Chi or public speaking. Take your oceanography knowledge to greater depths or you can learn how to read body language. The Great Courses Plus has something for everyone, and it's all thoroughly vetted, fact-based information you can trust, from some of the best professors and top experts in the field from all over the world. And when you download the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen on any device, learning anytime or anywhere. So, what purpose waits for you? Sign up for The Great Courses Plus and find out. Visit our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked, and you'll get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. You don't want to pass this up. So go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. 
The Labour Party is planning a patriotic rebrand according to a leaked internal strategy document. The new strategy is aimed at winning back the so-called Red Wall seats, the working class, formerly Labour constituencies who voted for Brexit in 2016 and defected to the Tories in 2019. Labour hopes that presentations of patriotism will show that the party has changed from the Corbyn era. Some of the top recommendations include making use of the union flag and army veterans and dressing smartly. Critics have slammed the move as either phony or downright dangerous. Former Shadow Minister Clive Lewis said Labour was in danger of pandering to the nativist right. Tom, do you think any of this will do much to win back disillusioned voters? Oh, definitely not. If anything, if anyone picks up on some of the chatter around it, it's probably going to send them in the opposite direction. Because looking at all of this, you can't really work out which is worse. This very cringy, superficial rebranding exercise to try and make the Labour Party look more patriotic. Or the ridiculous response to it from people like Clive Lewis and elsewhere. There was one quote in the original Guardian piece where this presentation was reported on, had been leaked to, where one unnamed staffer talks about watching the capital riots and thinking to herself, is this the kind of thing we want to be messing with? I.e. if you mess with patriotism, if you put Keir Starmer in front of a Union Jack, it's only a matter of time before a bunch of lunatics break into the capital. It's a really fascinating insight into how, just to how detached really both sides of the Labour Party are from the people that they're trying to win back. You've got the kind of centrist Keir Starmer element who seem to think a very cringy, phony rebranding exercises all that it will take. And then you've got the kind of Labour left, really, who have this absolutely insane outsized reaction to what are often incredibly mild attempts at patriotism. I think the issue here is not only is Labour misunderstanding the voters they're trying to win back, they're also kind of misunderstanding the problem, mm. I think. Labour's issue is not its discomfort, really, with national symbols. Its issue is its discomfort with the national electorate. It's with the people in those constituencies. And I think you see that time and time again with Labour's woes in its heartlands now it's been building up over recent years. You know, Emily Thornberry famously in 2014 posting this kind of sneering image of a white van draped in the England flag. And then at the 2019 election, allegedly there's some litigation going <laughs> on saying to a MP in a red wall seat that had voted Brexit, thank God my constituents aren't as dumb as yours are or something to that effect. So again, you see time and again, this revulsion at nation, this revulsion at national symbols, it's really just a proxy, it feels like often, for a revulsion at certain kinds of voters who they assume to be Little Englanders, really. And that's really what they've got to address. Because again, whilst you're seeing kind of two reactions to this patriotism story, people more on the right of the party or in the centre saying that, you know, this is just a simple rebrand, this shouldn't be controversial, and then other people flying off the handle. What does unite those two is, again, this distance from and dislike of the public. That's the thing they've really got to get on top of. And I think the patriotism thing is is interesting, especially because Labour in its previous history didn't have any issue kind of trying to speak the language of patriotism as we might previously understand it. But nevertheless, in the here and now, that's certainly the most pressing issue is the fact they don't like the voters, let alone the country. Yeah, I mean, thinking about some of the some of the history, even the recent history, I mean, you think about when Tony Blair first walked into Downing Street with the flood of union flags being waved vigorously by Labour activists, it should be said, not by actual members of the public. <laughs> <laughs> and people often think about the kind of post-war period with with Clement Attlee and the posters about, you know, winning winning the peace. But one of the one of the things this is this is really raised is the question of who is the Labour core voter. Because the Guardian's Aditya Chakrabotti said, you know, this is going to turn off Labour's core voters. And 
you do wonder what do they mean by that? Because at the end of the day, most research shows that the vast majority of people are comfortable with patriotism. They're not raging flag wavers or raging flag fornicators. But, you know, most people take some pride in living in Britain, take pride in a number of British institutions and don't necessarily see that as a bad thing. And, you know, it's only a very, very tiny minority of, I guess you could call them progressive people who who sneer at all of that. And the problem for Labour, I think, is that that, I guess, tiny minority of the country is now seen as their core kind of support group, not just their core voters, but those are the people who make up the membership of the Labour Party, who go on to become MPs in the Labour Party. And so they kind of have a completely strange and skewed view of the country. And then, of course, the flip side of that view is is to believe that just by draping yourself in a few flags, that's what the little people want. And that's all they care about. It has really revealed, once again, as it seems to every decision Labour takes, it once again reveals their complete distance from ordinary people and the ordinary electorate. Ella? I think the most grotesque part of this is that it would be one thing if the Labour Party was thinking about moving towards a kind of principled ideological position that was in line with some quite grand sense of what patriotism means or, you know, a bigger idea for what it meant to be British. But the the kind of grotesque part of this is the shallow nature of it. So I still look at the Union Jack as the butcher's apron. But as a matter of fact, it it doesn't necessarily have those connotations that it might have had in years gone by. It's lost some of that. And, you know, the fact that people wave it now, it doesn't signify that you hold a particular political position. You know, it's a very safe thing for the Labour Party to now talk about patriotism. That's why it's just so, you know, as Tom says, it's so ridiculous for Clive Lewis and others to get so overblown about it. But it's the shallowness of it is an important point because, it's insulting for them to think that they can just dress, you know, what put on a suit and stand in front of a flag and that red voters will tick by the box that they want them to as if it was all about appearances. But in fact, you have to ask the question, what is it that patriotism means? What are you proud about your country for? And not to keep bringing up Brexit, but Brexit being a prime example of the Labour Party in particular and many of its activists that campaign for Remain and continued to campaign for Remain after the vote was announced, having a genuine sense of them not being not proud of their country, but not proud of the people that live in their country, being disdainful of the people that live in their country. It's an awkward question for us and for anyone. What does Britain stand for? What are the values that we are meant to be patriotic about or proud of? I mean, if you look at things like freedom of speech, we've got a big problem with that in this country. If you look at democracy, we've got a big problem with that in this country. Tolerance, all these issues are called into question. Baroness Shami Chakrabarti has been quoted looking at, she's talking about the fact she went back through Labour's history and was <laughs> ridiculous quotes, you know, shocked at how nasty people were at the time of the First World War. And she says, you know, because of the divisions that happened in the party around participation in the war. And she says, you know, I couldn't believe that people were being cruel about the fact that some objected to the imperialism of that particular war. It gets to the heart of what's the problem here is that the misunderstanding of what happened in, for example, the First World War was not that people objected to it necessarily on the basis of it being an imperialist war, but because you were asking vast swathes of working class men who at 1914 did not have, many of them did not have the vote yet to go and sacrifice themselves for a country that treated them like dirt and like second class citizens. Fast forward a hundred more years 
And the Labour Party is still in that same position of not being in a place where it understands or appreciates what it is that working class people want in this country. That rift began in 1914 and it's still there today because, you know, whether it's Brexit or any kind of other political areas, they want to look like they're standing for workers, but they have no desire to fight for working class interests. And so this whole, the row about patriotism is insulting because it's patronising to voters, but it reveals the problem at the heart of the Labour Party is that it has never stood for the working class. And so put on all the suits you like and stand in front of any of the flags, but you'll get nowhere. Tom? I think just quickly to pick up on a point that Fraser raised earlier, which is how we're at a point in which national identity is incredibly benign Mm. (laughs) in this country. It's multiracial. If you look at all the kind of survey evidence, there's comfort with British national identity, even English national identity across the board, really. It's not even seen as something which is racially exclusionary or anything like that. It's something which has become, broadly speaking, something which people are very at ease with. And yet that is in, in complete inverse proportion to the way in which the left in particular talk about it, as if it's rampant, raging, insane, going to lead to civil strife (laughs) and all these kinds of different sorts of things. I think one thing that gets missed in all of this is whilst you shouldn't fetishise national identity or some kind of ersatz idea of patriotism, but the issue of kind of sneering and rejecting it is you also reject some of the positive content of it because the the nation and national identity is limited in its own way, but at the same time, it provides a common ground. It's a way in which you kind of can bring people together on a kind of more benign level footing as to what you are as a polity and what it is you want to achieve and a sense of solidarity and all the rest of it. And I think the big reason that a lot of these people on the left in particular and the Corbynite left reject national identity so much is that they really dislike those kind of more universalising aspects of it. At least there's something in that which grates against them because they love identity politics. They love that kind of ethnic, gender, sexual factionalism. That's the kind of language they're more comfortable in talking in. So I think it's no wonder that national identity is something that makes them feel kind of gross is because it rubs up against the very divisive worldview that they've kind of adopted in its stead, if you like. And I think that's got at least something to do with how muddled a lot of them are in thinking about this issue. Investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, high commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it seem complicated for people to start investing. Meanwhile, trillion-dollar investment companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free trade is on a mission to change that, by breaking down these barriers and by opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to £12 for every trade, free trade doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can invest and keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by over 250,000 people. It's authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority and it's protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Free Trade has won the award for Best Online Trading Platform at the British Bank Awards for two years in a row now. Free Trade lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs and investment trusts, all without commission. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners and experts alike. And you can start investing from as little as just £2. Free Trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as CFDs or spread betting or products with leverage. And they don't do day trading. They're all about long-term investing and they have a transparent pricing model with no hidden fees or inflated spreads. 
you can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA. Or you can sign up to Free Trade Plus with more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. Self-invested personal pensions are also being launched on Free Trade soon. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. So go to freetrade.io slash spiked, and if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. Some of the shares you can win include Greg's, Rightmove and Apple. For more information, visit freetrade.io and for the special offer and the free share, visit freetrade.io slash spiked. Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden has written to the FA vowing to eradicate the online abuse of footballers. A number of players have been subjected to racist attacks on social media. Prince William has called on social media platforms to do more to stamp out abuse. And Motormouth TV pundit Piers Morgan has launched a campaign for trolls to be fined £100,000 for every offensive post. He also wants all social media users to be forced to use their real name, real picture and even identify their workplace to eliminate online anonymity. The government has plans to do more via its upcoming online harms bill, which will impose a duty on social media companies to delete so-called harmful content. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it goes without saying that the posts which people have been talking about levelled at Marcus Rashford and other footballers are absolutely disgusting. But the question is, what should you do about it? And also, what way should we look at this problem? I think there's a big issue of a lack of proportion Mm. in this issue. If you look at something like football, the kind of days of people en masse throwing, you know, banana skins onto the pitch are long gone. You know, things have come a long way in that respect. And I think the issue with something like social media is it has a tendency to amplify the handful of knuckle draggers that are still knocking around. That's something that's difficult to deal with. But at the same time, you do have a situation in which a handful of people, sometimes people with multiple accounts, can effectively force a policy response <laughs> in in reflection of the things that they've said. And whilst it's difficult to get in the mindset of someone who would want to hold that kind of abuse and it's disgusting and all the rest of it, you do have to be very wary of this kind of overreaction because, I mean, the things that Piers Morgan is suggesting are absolutely crazy. I mean, that is a crippling fee for anyone and it's not the sort of thing that you should be wielding around willy-nilly. A lot of the suggestions that are coming through government, this online harms bill, you know, effectively trying to regulate the big tech firms and fining them for not taking down not just illegal content, but harmful Mm. content, which is kind of nebulously described all that's really worrying so all of this is a real concern for free speech so i think the the issue here is that the reaction is much more of a problem certainly and what's interesting is that when you've seen some of the cases around trolling over the years you often see an attempt to make it look like it's a kind of society-wide problem like yes this is disgusting and it's like the gutter but it's just giving us a sense of what people are really like people remember back in 2013 the whole kind of trolling of feminist campaigners caroline criado perez and a few others when they were campaigning to get jane austen on the five pound note criado perez in particular was subjected to vile rape threats death threats for a number of days and she made the statement this is normal guys you know this is basically what the country looks Mm. like and we need to reckon with that but when the two people who were found to be responsible for some of this were brought to trial one of them was a woman and had a history of alcoholism and emotional problems. And everyone was a complete shut-in whose defence in that case was basically the fact that he was such a social recluse, he didn't know what he was doing. 
So there is an issue with overreaction here. And you do have to wonder whether, again, you should hold people responsible for their actions. If criminal sanctions for what is in the end offensive speech on social media is proportionate to what is often the action of a handful of even knuckle draggers, losers, or people with a lot of problems who are just amplified by the social media world that we now inhabit, which is just very different to anything we've experienced previously. I'm always shocked when I hear that we need new laws to deal with this stuff. And and I I think the law's probably already doing far too much, already overreaching too much on social media and in terms of, you know, combating trolling. Last year, we <laughs> we looked at this case where the West Midlands police arrested a 12-year-old boy for sending racist messages to a footballer. I mean, let's be real about what's going on here. You know, a multi-millionaire footballer gets offended and the messages are disgusting, but then has the law at their disposal to basically have a child punished and hauled over the coals. Again, only because they were offended, essentially. I also just find it quite hard to believe that all these footballers who have millions of followers are spending all their time reading their personal messages from absolute nobodies. I mean, they all have PR teams and assistants to to read all this stuff. It does seem slightly bizarre. They have people handling their communications. It, it seems to be a kind of almost a, a way of presenting themselves as as kind of victims and you know when we know that they actually have incredibly good lives as disgusting as this behavior is and you know no doubt it is no one should pretend otherwise i think that the, a mountain has been made out of a molehill and it's become an excuse for a broader attack on free speech online ella with figures like marcus rashford and actually in the world of politics diane abbott It's that this kind of unique and weird phenomenon that because they're black and high profile public figures, they're like, it's, you know, racists who are acting like dying stars, kind of becoming more and more explosive and vicious and sucking everything into them, target them. And the question is, that's wrong. And you call it out as wrong. But what, as Tom says, what do you do about it? And do you implement blanket bans and blanket approaches on the basis of these quite particular instances where people are, you know, having a really hard time dealing with racism. And on particular, I mean, I know Thomas said that some of the stuff that Piers Morgan has come out with is mad and God help us if that man ever gets into power, but the, in any position of power. But one thing he raised was the question of anonymity. And this has been, you know, floated as an issue by lots of people. And it, it's a really good example of showing people why looking at future consequences for a kind of present day immediate problem is important. Because yes, you could force people to show who they are, to show where they work, to show all their details in order to stop the racism that you're facing today. But all you have to do is turn the tables and say, well, what if you are a young person involved in a Black Lives Matter protest or any kind of protest? And that protest, as we've seen last year, gets out of hand and people start getting arrested at it. And suddenly the police are looking through social media to find, or your employer is looking through social media to find who was at that protest in order to sack them or arrest them. At that point, anonymity for a political activist becomes really vital. It's central to being able to operate. It's really not hard to see how these things have a knock-on effect and can hamper people even who have kind of best interests at heart of wanting to deal with a problem. Mick Hume wrote about this first fight this week, and he made a really strong point about the question of balancing harms, which is what you're in the business of, which is, yes, no one wants to undermine the genuine harm and hurt that racist views and racist prejudice that still exists in this country does. 
but by clamping down on free speech or clamping down on people's ability to to commit harm, you're actually creating a much greater harm, a much greater problem, which is neutering out any ability for political argument. And the central question is, how do you deal with racism? Do you just pretend that it doesn't exist by shutting people up with fines or by driving people underground or by blocking all ability to say it online? It's still there. It's still festering. It's, you know, it still is a problem to be dealt with. So I think courage is a bit of a controversial word to use in this because essentially what you're asking people is to grow thick skin and be able to face up to stuff that they really shouldn't have to face up with. You know, Marcus Rashford shouldn't have to have monkey emojis sent to him and stuff like that. But if you have courage of political convictions to want to fight racism, then you have to demand that you're not protected from these things, that actually you have the freedom to argue against them. Tom, I just think the tragedy in all of this is the fact that anti-racism has become synonymous with censorship these days. The two are seen as one in the same. And that's something which is really kind of historically specific in a lot of ways, actually, because a lot of the people who had fought for civil rights, abolition, also passionate free speech activists, particularly in the US, which obviously has this very strong free speech tradition, you know, Frederick Douglass, all the way through to John Lewis, who died last year, obviously, who once said that without the First Amendment, the civil rights movement would be a bird without its wings. This has completely gone from our discussion at all, whether it's discussion about social media, tackling racism in society more broadly. The idea that, first of all, censoring speech you dislike is just dangerous because you create a precedent which could then reach onto you is just dismissed outright in a way that is very concerning. And then on the other side, there's just no understanding of the lesson of history, which is that you can't push these things underground. You have to tackle them out in the open. And it's just so striking that that is almost entirely absent from our conversation about this at the moment. I understand it's more likely to be that in the UK. We've had hate speech laws for a long time. We're used to this kind of precedent being set. But the fact that even in America, in kind of parallel discussions there being had, that you raise this point that free speech for racists is actually important because it's how you maintain the precedent of free speech, but also challenge these views in society, is just kind of dismissed out of hand at this point. And that's a real tragedy, I think. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.